much. Our second speaker is John Hardinot. John is the H.E. Babcock Professor of Food and Nutrition Economics and Policy at Cornell University, as well as a non-resident fellow at IFPRI. And a welcome back to John. Uh, thank you, Rajul. Uh, thank you, everyone, for being here on, as Rajul describes, a hot and steamy, or perhaps arguably typical, uh, Washington summer day. Also, thank you to all of you who are joining online or are going to be watching this later. Uh, my remit in this part of the presentation is to talk about uh, outcomes as they relate to household-level welfare and nutrition. To do so, it's going to be very important when you look at these numbers to actually understand some of the context in which these individuals are now living. And in particular, the context relating to the food assistance they're receiving. The core message I want you to take away from this first part of the conversation is at the moment, the humanitarian food assistance system in place is working as well as anyone could reason reasonably expect it to work. Uh, virtually everyone we surveyed who is a forcibly displaced Myanmar national, a lot of words which I will abbreviate to FDMN, is receiving some form of food assistance. Uh, the majority are receiving it in the form of a generalized food distribution, that is the standard WFP ration that people receive, uh, which is, includes uh, rice as the staple, lentils for an additional staple and also for protein, and uh, micronutrient fortified vegetable oil. That accounts for 60-odd percent of the population receiving that. Around just over a third receive something called an e-voucher, which is this really cool system where beneficiaries receive an, what is in effect a debit card. Uh, the debit card is topped up remotely every month. Uh, they can then take it to shops within the camps and use a point-of-sale uh, point machine to actually purchase an approved list of foods, approximately 15 to 20 foods, using those particular cards. Not only is everyone covered by this, for the vast majority of the FDMN, this is their single most important source of income. In many respects, the system is working well. Payments are accessible. Uh, people can actually use these payments or access distribution points very close to their homes. Types of concerns we often might have in humanitarian contexts around individuals being harassed when they're receiving their payments, uh, theft, violence, what we say gently, payments to persons and persons of authority. Virtually, that is very, very rare. And we also ask our respondents how well you find working with these, these systems, and generally people find both the food distribution and all the e-vouchers that they find them easy and straightforward to work with. So that's what I mean when I say the system is working as well as anyone could reasonably expect. But it's important to note that for a significant fraction of our, our population, these transfers are not enough relative to their needs. In fact, more than half say that they exhaust their transfers before they receive their, their next payments. And it's also worth noting that many, for many households who have no access to cash employment, one of the few ways in which they can obtain cash to buy non-food items is to sell some of the ration. Okay? And this is a particular issue, of course, for people who are receiving the food ration because they're receiving the food, which is great. If they don't have any other source of cash and you ask yourself, well, how do they buy things like soap or medicine? One of the mechanisms, of course, in which they can do that is actually sell some of the ration. And we do see evidence of that in our data. Uh, as Paul Droche mentioned, we collected a wide range of welfare indicators for these households, metrics around housing, ownership of consumer durables, 
uh, perceptions of well-being, as well as a standard household consumption module, collecting data both on food and non-food consumption. I could talk about any of these measures. They all tell the same story. These people are very poor. And I'll use the data we have on consumption to illustrate that. So what you have in this table are data that we collected on uh, per capita expenditures, both on food and non-food items. Uh, the top row gives it the uh, descriptive statistics for the full migrant sample. And I think for this audience, the most useful numbers to look at are actually the numbers in italics and parentheses. So they take these numbers uh, that we collect and we convert them to US dollars. And the top line comment I want you to leave with this is that the average person uh, in the migrants in these camps lives on $20 a month, okay, or $20 a month, or better phrased, 60 to 65 cents a day, okay? We think of a global poverty line typically being $2 per person per day. The average person's income is a quarter of that. I have done work in developing countries for 30 years. This is by far the poorest population I've ever worked with. Not surprisingly, most of those budgets go on food. Okay, across all migrants, approximately 69% of the budget goes on food, with a third on non-food goods. As you move from the newer migrants to the older migrants, you'll see that the older migrants actually have slightly higher levels of consumption, um, and a slight shift within that consumption bundle towards non-food items. A lot of that is driven by the fact is that a small uh, minority of older migrants have the ability to access wage employment, both inside and outside the camps, and that's a very important adjunct of income for those individuals. It also highlights, and there's a point that uh, I think Paul DeRoche will come back to, is the potential of importance of allowing migrants to gain access to employment as a mechanism for increasing their living standards. If we look at the budget shares, given the dominance of the food, food ration for these individuals, it's not surprising that expenditures or values of expenditures on rice, on grains, on pulses and nuts predominate in terms of those uh, expenditure bundles. If we look at these data in terms of caloric availability, because the food ration in particular is very calorie dense, caloric availability is, is reasonably good relative to the standards we typically set uh, for these types of populations at around 2490 kilocalories per adult equivalent per day. But it's important to recognize that the diets of the FDMN are incredibly monotonous with very little consumption of fruits, vegetables, or animal source foods. Rice, other grains, pulses account for nearly 50% of their food budgets. Those items plus oils account for 85% of caloric availability, with animal source foods only accounting for about 5% of the calories people consume and fruit and vegetables only 3%. If we look at non-food expenditures, items relating to food and lighting account for 32% of those budgets. And remember, those budgets are really small to begin with. So the average FDN uh, individual uh, in our sample spends a uh, little less than 80 taka per person per month on hygiene products, similarly, similar amounts on clothing. The current exchange rate is roughly 85 taka to the dollar. So it's saying on a monthly basis, people are spending less than a dollar per month on things like soap and other hygiene products. If we turn and look at some of the nutrition indicators that we collected data on, Nutrition indicators, to put it mildly, are not great. Amongst all women, 16% uh, have uh, middle upper arm circumferences of less than 230 millimeters, which is an indicator of th thinness, 
and that rises to 30% of migrant women who are pregnant. One of the reasons that's a concern is that women who are thin during pregnancy are at increased risk of low birth weight babies, which then comes with a whole host of problems for the next generation. It's also worth mentioning that anti access to antenatal care is limited. Only 59% of pregnant FDMN women report having any access to antenatal care, and only 55% report receiving iron folic acid supplementation. We collected data also on children's nutritional status, both chronic and acute undernutrition. Uh, the chronic undernutrition indicator we use is height for age z-scores, which in many audiences I need to explain, but I don't think I, I need to do so here. Um, but for those of you following online, basically a height for z-score is a measure of long-term nutritional status. Um, it's a reflection of what happens to children in utero during the first 60 months of life when they should be exclusively breastfed, and in particular in the period 6 to 24 months uh, when they're being first exposed to complementary foods, have considerable growth potential, but are also vulnerable to infection. If we look at children who have height for age z-scores below minus 2, these are children who are considered stunted. And one of the things we can do with the data we collected is match it up with data that was collected just after these populations arise, ar uh, arrived in Bangladesh. So that earlier data is actually what's referred to as the REVA-1 in the table you have in front of you. At the time of REVA-1, amongst the older migrant populations, that's in the Nayapar refugee camp, uh, stunting was approximately 44 percent. It was similar prevalences were observed amongst the newer migrants in what's referred to as the makeshift camps. And you can see that one piece of very good news in all this is the prevalence of stunting has come down markedly from an astonishingly high 44% just after these individuals arrived, in the case of the newer migrants, to just a really bad 32%. Our second indicator that we look at relates to uh, children's acute malnutrition, which is captured by weight or height z-scores. And in particular, we combine that with uh, evidence we have on whether on the prevalence of edema to construct an indicator of global acute uh, malnutrition, uh, which a child is considered to be in that category if their weight for height z-scores are below minus 2, that is, they're wasted, or they have visible edema. And what you see both in the newer migrants, in the makeshift camps, and amongst children in the older populations, between the first survey done just after the newer migrants arrived and our survey, is the prevalence of global acute malnutrition declines from a horrifically high 19%, you know, particularly in the case of children in the makeshift camps, to approximately 13.4%. Two other features to notice about this is that although these prevalence have declined, they are still very high for certain subgroups within this population. So for, amongst, for example, amongst children 6 to 23 months in the newer mi uh, migrant category whose mothers have no education, the prevalence of goal acute malnutrition is still 20%. You also notice that we also collected information on children's illness, and one thing which is worth marking here is the prevalence of diarrheal diseases, which, has, as you might imagine, has a very strong association with wasting. That has come down between the first and second survey rounds, and that is consistent in some sense, or in some sense nicely matches uh, the observed reduction we see in the prevalence of global acute malnutrition. So where does all this all leave us in terms of trying to understand living standards to suggest possible interventions for the future and so on? Well, as I say, it's worth noting that there is some good news in all of this, that across a number of markers of children's nutritional status, we observe improvements uh, between 2017 and 2018. 
But even though we observe those improvements, the prevalence of poor nutrition remains high. And it remains high in a context where food assistance is universal and per capita food availability in terms of calories is relatively good. So looking forward, one of the things that will be important for the international community to do is focus on assessing and resolving bar the barriers that exist to improve nutritional status. A major focus must be on women who are pregnant during lactation, particularly in these new migrant households. In these new migrant households, as we observed, the low uh, coexistence of low maternal uh, metabolic circumference, a measure of thinness, low poor access to antenatal care, poor access to uh, iron folic acid, all of which are consistent with the relatively low rate, low uh, values for high FHD scores that we observe in this population. We notice that the decline in acute malnutrition mirrors the decline in diarrheal prevalence, but diarrheal prevalence still remains high, and gamma is, high, is higher in children who have recent diarrhea. We also have data that we haven't presented here that suggests that, for example, that, that the housing stock of many of these households is really very poor, particularly for the newer FDMN. And this suggests, particularly in terms of improvements to nutritional status, is that there's going to be considerable value in terms of improving efforts around water, uh, sanitation, and hygiene. Okay? Particularly, and this is where we come back to some of these issues around food assistance, the fact that people have access to food, they don't have access to non-food goods which are associated with nutrition, they're living in very crowded conditions, all of which are contributing to poor children's nutritional status, and that's likely to continue absence additional efforts in that area. Thank you very much.